Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the rain that you've brought our way that we certainly don't deserve, but we desperately needed. And thank you how it's kind of cooled the temperatures down and kind of uh, revived the lawns that were getting pretty brown and crispy. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the safety that you've given us all to be able to come and congregate and meet out here this morning to be able to read and study your word. So, Lord, help us, Father, to get in the right frame of heart and mind and leave all of our cares and worries of this past week and of the week to come on the outside stoop and uh, help us to uh, hone and hone our concentration and, and focus our hearts and minds on you and on your word and on your goodness and that you would just condition and prepare our hearts and minds to be able to receive your word and that your Holy Spirit would just move freely within our hearts and minds and be our teacher and guide today as we read your word so that we can apply it to our lives and become better people for you, but so we could also relay what we've learned and uh, um, maybe draw others closer to you or, or, or create an interest in someone else and draw them to you. So, Father, we love you and we praise you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 32. Uh, Jacob is 90 years old at this time. And Jacob's about to have the wrestling match of his life. I don't know how many 90-year-olds that uh, could probably win a wrestling match against the angel of the Lord. Well, he didn't really win. It was kind of a draw. <laughs> you know, he, there, it was a submission, basically. Uh, but anyway, he held his ground. But again, the earth and the atmosphere and the environment were different back in that day than it is today. Uh, but, uh, I mean, uh, one of our congregants is about to turn 90, and I just can't imagine her wrestling at 90 but even though she is feisty uh, but Jacob was 90 years old at this time and so it says uh, early in the morning Laban got up and kissed his grandchildren and daughters and blessed them so we're at this point chapter 31 just a short recap Jacob and his wives and all of his children left Laban because Laban continued cheating him out of his fair wages and was just treating him and the family bad he felt led of the Lord to go back to Canaan and get out of Mesopotamia and go back home to where he belongs. And he left without telling Laban. Laban got word like three days later and then chases him, catches up with him six days later and uh, confronts him and accuses him of stealing his, his idols, uh, which Laban couldn't prove. And Jacob didn't even know that Rachel stole the household gods of Laban. So they finally make a peace treaty uh, that they would create a border or a boundary marker and one wouldn't cross the other to harm the other and they sacrificed animals and had this big feast and this big meal uh, to kind of seal the deal uh, that there was this peace treaty and they were going to go their separate ways but there was a loophole in this peace treaty because according to tradition even though Laban couldn't cross the border uh, to inflict harm on Jacob didn't mean he couldn't send somebody to do the dirty work for him so he sent uh, one of his sons ahead to kind of warn Esau that Jacob was on his way because he knew that Esau had a vendetta against Jacob. So here we are, the, uh, the, the uh, peace treaty meal is done. It's the next morning, everybody's about to go their separate ways. And so it says, early in the morning, Laban got up and kissed his grandchildren and daughters and blessed them. You know, trying to put on that good show like I'm the good old dad, right? Uh, then Laban left and returned to his place. While Jacob left on his way, the angels of God met him. Then Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. And he named the place Mahanaim, or in the Hebrew, Mechahanim. 
So this is a very mysterious and controversial uh, passage in the scripture because of this whole angel thing. When Jacob left on his way, the angels of God met him. Then Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. And he named the place Mahanam or Mechahanim. So were these angels or were these regular human beings? We don't know for sure. And, and the scholars are divided on this point. Almost 100% of the time, it's translated as angels. But you've got to remember that the word angel uh, in the Hebrew could either mean a divine, heavenly, angelic being, or it could mean a human messenger. Depending on the context is really dependent on how you're going to translate uh, that word melech, which is angel or malach, depending on how you want to pronounce it. So, as I said, the scholars are divided. Some believe that it is literal, heavenly, divine angels because later on in the chapter, Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. So, you know, if he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, why would it be so strange if he met angels at the beginning of this chapter? And others believe, based on extra-biblical texts and other uh, traditions among the Jewish people, that these were actually human beings. They were, they were human messengers. Um, in Jasher, the book of Jasher, which the scriptures talk about the book of Jasher, uh, the book of Jasher is a Jewish reliable historical book, though it is not divinely inspired, so we can't count on it for divine revelation, but it is pretty um, reliable and accurate in regards to history. But again, if you're going to look at Jasher and Jubilees and Enoch, you've got to take those passages and filter it through the inspired word of God to see if it lines up. So Jasher says that these uh, angels are really human messengers. They are 72 of Isaac's servants that Rebekah sent after hearing that Laban uh, and Esau were plotting against Jacob. So Rebekah was always uh, trying to protect her son, always trying to protect Jacob. Jacob was her favorite. God told Rebekah that Jacob was going to be the patriarchal leader of the family. That the uh, young, uh, that the older would serve the younger. So we all know about the the plot where uh, in the beginning, uh, fair and square, Jacob received the birthright from Esau because he despised it, didn't count it as anything valuable. And then came the blessing. Isaac was fully intent on blessing Esau against God's divine will. So Rebecca felt that she had to use uh, uh, deceptive means in order to ensure that Jacob got the blessing as well. And so we all know how he disguised himself as Esau in order to obtain this blessing. And that's why Esau wanted to kill him so bad and wanted to get back because he lost everything because of Jacob. So even though Laban agreed not to personally cross over this boundary marker in order to have harmful intent for Jacob didn't mean he couldn't get somebody to do the dirty work. So he sent his sons ahead, secretly ahead, to, um, to warn Esau that Jacob was coming and to kind of make plans, make, and they were plotting together. Now, how Rebecca got wind of this, I'm not sure. Maybe that there was, you know, maybe that there was a mole inside Laban's camp, or maybe one of Jacob's servants overheard you know, Laban's servants talking or sons talking or something. But somehow, some way, according to the book of Jasher, Rebekah got word of this. So she sent 72 of Isaac's servants ahead uh, to, to kind of help Jacob out. So um, it says, while Jacob was on his way, the angels of God or the messengers of God 
depending on how you want to translate that, met him. Then Jacob said when he saw, when he saw them, this is God's camp, and he named the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. And two camps is very symbolic. Um, you know, it could spiritually mean that even though maybe these were human messengers, sometimes when, when somebody rescues you from something or when somebody does you a good deed or, or meets your needs, you say, oh, you're just like an angel of God to me. Or seeing your face is like seeing the face of an angel. Or, oh, you're such an angel for helping me out. Kind of symbolic of that divine intervention that God was, was doing. So two camps could mean that it was two camps in that you know, that the angels are fighting in the background, in the supernatural, while the 72 servants of Isaac was right there to help in the physical. So they were two camps. They were sent by God, and God blessed them to help Jacob. That's a possible meaning for two camps. Also, what it could mean is that there's two camps. There's God's camp, which is these messengers and or angels, however you want to interpret it, and there's Jacob's camp. So there's two camps that met together. Or it could also mean uh, symbolic of Jacob dividing his family into two camps. He divided them into two camps. He had his, his wives and their children in one camp, and he also had the handmaids and their children in another camp. So they were two camps because the whole plan was to divide the family up because he eventually found out Esau was coming. And so if Esau was going to attack, he would attack the first band or the first group, which would have been the handmaids and their children, allowing the wives and their children to escape. Uh, so there's many different uh, symbolic meanings for Mahanaim, for two camps. Also, this is kind of prophetic that Jacob's children, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, would eventually become two camps because you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You had the kingdom of Israel and you had the kingdom of Judah. And it is still that way unto this day. The only uh, the only camp that is in existence is in Israel, which is the camp of Judah, made up of Judah, Levi, and a little bit of Benjamin. You have the other ten tribes that are still lost in Assyrian captivity, scattered all over the world. That's the second camp. That is the camp of Israel. Because the house of Israel became two houses, the house of Judah and the house of Israel, also sometimes called the house of Ephraim. So two camps carries a fully loaded uh, meaning here, and it can mean so many different things. So whether you want to uh, believe or decide that these uh, angels were human or uh, or they were angelic, it, it, you know, that's up to you. It just depends. Um, and it really, it doesn't change anything doctrinally. And that's the thing about the scriptures. If there's some things that you could debate about or some things that you could argue about or have, you know, different opinions on, it's little narratives like this because it has no... No uh, hinging upon any important doctrine like sanctification or salvation or holiness or what have you. Um, so I'll just kind of leave that for you to decide just to know that there's two different competing theories regarding these angels or who these heavenly messengers were. You can kind of do the same thing in the New Testament in the desert when Jesus was um, being tempted of the devil. After that temptation, it says that angels came and ministered to him. I'm beginning, personally, this is my personal opinion, I'm not so sure that they were heavenly divine messengers, that they were heavenly beings, because the way the narrative is in the Gospels, um, he was out in the desert. He was in the wilderness. And who was out in the desert? It was the Qumran community or the Essenes. They were the Sadducee sect 
the Levitical priesthood that broke away from the temple because it had become corrupted with the Pharisees, corrupted with certain Sadducees, and they were bedfellows with the, uh, the Roman government. And uh, so there were shady things going on with the temple. So these Levites, these Sadducees says, we're going to break away and form our community in the desert until the Lord restores everything. And John the Baptist was a part of this Essene Qumran community. That's why he was wearing a, a camel hair and a leather belt and why he was in the wilderness teaching and preaching because he grew up in this Qumran community. He separated himself from the Levitical priesthood that had become corrupt. Because if you remember John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he was a priest in the temple. And it was his turn to light the incense or to do whatever he did when the angel came to him and said, you're going to have a son and you know he's going to be the herald to bring forth the Messiah. So if somebody's coming into your territory in the desert, you're going to have people that are going to look out. This Qumran community had to worry about infiltrators. They had to worry about Roman legions coming in and wiping them out because they were against the Roman government. So you would have lookouts all over the place in the desert. My guess, I think it's, it's you know, a, a decent theory, but it's my own, that uh, while Jesus was in the wilderness, maybe some of these people in the Qumran community were keeping tabs on Jesus because they knew that Jesus and John were related. They were cousins. And after they found out it was Jesus, uh, you know, uh, and, and after the temptation, then they realized, oh, he needs help. And they ministered to him, possibly giving him food and water. Because right after the temptation, what, what does Jesus find out? That John is in prison. Well, who would have told him? Besides the people of the Qumran community. Kind of makes sense to me. So whether you want to believe it was a literal angel or not, fine. Now, fast forward when Jesus is in the Garden of the Gethsemane. And it said that he was, you know, praying and sweating great drops of blood and an angel came to minister to him. I believe that was a literal angel because it couldn't have been nobody else. The disciples were asleep. There was nobody else there. I believe that was a literal angel. So, but the angels in the desert, in the wilderness, could have been an angel, could have been human messengers uh, that, that, that ministered to Jesus, such as the, the people of the Qumran community. So that's, that's up for the debate. Again, it has no pending upon uh, any important doctrine in scripture, you know, the cardinal things that we believe. So some things can be debated like that, such as this instance, was this Mahanaim God's camp? Was it really angels or was it, was it really heavenly beings? Jewish literature kind of leans towards that they were human uh, agents, human beings. All right, so enough on that rabbit trail, let's move on. Uh, verse four, then Jacob sent messengers, hmm, same word up above in verse two uh it says jacob left on his way and the angels of god met him that word angel in verse four the word messenger they're the same word then jacob sent messengers before him to his brother esau so could it possibly be that because these messengers were already there they were 72 of isaac's servants that he says, hey, while you're here, you might as well work for me. You might as well do your job and help me. Go ahead and meet Esau. So, you know, were these messengers, those 72 that Isaac sent, according to the book of Jasher, or were these messengers Jacob's own servants? Because he probably had a lot of servants at that time to kind of help with all the cattle and all the herds. And because we find out later that he had so many, so many um, animals that Jacob offers 550 animals as a gift to Esau. So he had thousands of flocks and herds. 
So was it Jacob's messengers or was it these messengers that according to the book of Jasher were Isaac's servants? We don't know, but it's just interesting the play on Hebrew words here where in one verse they decided to translate it as angels and then the next, in a couple verses later they decide to translate the same word as messengers which would give you the impression they were human beings. So just some interesting facts that usually people don't bring out when you're dealing with uh, uh, this, this uh, narrative here. So then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau to the land of Seir, the field of Edom. So Seir, there's a mountain of Seir, and that's Esau's, that's Esau's inheritance. But you also have the field of Edom. Edom is a nickname for Esau. Edom means red, and it harkens back to the time when Esau sold his birthright for that red lentil stew. Verse 5, he also commanded them saying, this is what you should say to my Lord. See, already Jacob is starting to flatter Esau, to butter Esau up, because after all, Esau is the oldest. He's the elder. So this is what you were to say to my Lord. So if Esau hears Jacob calling him Lord, it might kind of soften Esau up a little. Okay, yeah, Jacob's learning his place. Finally, who knows? This is what you should say to my Lord Esau. This is what your servant See how Jacob is using these words. He's saying, not only am I calling you Lord Esau, I am saying that I am your servant because you are the elder brother. So he's really trying to soften Esau up because he has no idea uh, what kind of state of mind that Esau is in. This is what your servant Jacob said. I've been staying with Laban and have lingered until now. Now I've come to uh, possess oxen and donkeys and flocks, male and female servants, I sent word to tell my Lord in order to find favor in your eyes. So he admits, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm looking for favor. You know, I want, I want passage through this place. I'm just trying to get back to mom and dad. I'm just trying to get back home. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, we went to your brother, to Esau, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men with him. How are you going to interpret that? With the past that Jacob and Esau had, I think it would be easy and natural to jump to the conclusion, 400 men? Oh my goodness, he's out to kill me and my whole family. Why would he think, oh, it's a welcoming committee? You don't need 400 people to welcome, you know, somebody else, right? You know, if you're going to send a welcoming committee, you might send a delegation of maybe 10 people or something with gifts and all this kind of stuff. But Jacob hears there's 400 men coming with Esau. What else is Jacob going to think but it's an army out to slaughter Jacob and slaughter his whole family and take back his blessing and take back his birthright and become the patriarch of the family. One way or another, Esau was going to be patriarch of the family. And this is what was scaring Jacob to death. And I really can't blame him because it was no secret that Esau had sworn at one time to kill Jacob. So the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we went to your brother to Esau. He's, he is also coming out to meet you. How would he know that Jacob is coming? In verse 4, it says he sent messengers before his brother Esau. So you had that, but also there is that theory that uh, um, Laban also sent his sons or somebody ahead to set Jacob up. So why would he prepare with 400 men if he wasn't told way ahead of time 
It takes a while to rally 400 men, and it takes a while to get them armed and prepared to go out to meet to somebody. But if they were warned ahead of time, they would have been on the trail right away. So there's different ways that you could take this or think about this. All right, verse 8. So Jacob became extremely afraid. No doubt, I would have been too. What else was he going to think? And distressed. He divided the people with him along with the flocks and the herds and the camels into what? Two camps. That goes all the way back to verse uh, 2 or verse 3. This is God's camp, so he named the place two camps. Mahanaim or Mahanaim. Verse 9, for he thought if Esau comes to one camp and strikes it, the camp that is left will escape. And because the handmaids weren't as high on the totem pole as Rachel and Leah, and as their sons were not as high up on the totem pole as the sons of Rachel and Leah, they were the ones that were going to be the scapegoat, or so to speak. They were going to be the sacrificial lamb, if you will. They were going to be the ones that if Esau decided to attack, they would attack them first because they're not as prominent, not as important. They don't have as much inheritance or much authority. And so Leah and, the, uh, Leah and Rachel and their children, the important ones, will be able to escape and survive and carry on the family name and the family lineage. Verse, uh, all right, I'm going to look at my notes here to see if I'm still staying on track. All right. Okay, so keep on, on with verse 10. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Adonai, Yahweh, Lord, who said to me, return to your land and to your relatives, and I will do good for you. So Jacob is basically saying, hey, the reason I'm on this journey, the reason that I'm going back to Canaan is because you told me to leave Mesopotamia. You told me to leave Laban. You made it abundantly clear that I wasn't welcome there and it was time to go back home. And all of a sudden, this is happening to me? Lord, this is up to you to save me. Esau's coming with 400 men and he's likely doesn't have good intent in mind. He wants to kill me. You're the one who said to leave and now I'm in this mess. How are you going to get me out of this stick, sticky situation, Lord? So verse 11, I am unworthy of all the proofs of mercy and of all the dependability that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed over this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Jacob is saying, hey, it's a rags to riches story with me. When I left because Esau was going to kill me and my mom said to go to Uncle Laban's, I didn't have time to take a whole lot of stuff with me. I just basically took my walking staff. That's all that I had and the clothes on my back. So verse 12, he says, deliver me, please, from my brother's hand, from Esau's hand, for I am afraid of him that he will come and strike me, the mothers and the children. You yourself said... So here Jacob is calling upon God, reminding God of his covenant and his promise with him. Because remember, when he was at Bethel, the house of God, the gateway to God, where, the, where he lay on a, a, a stone pillow and he had this vision of this ladder going uh, from heaven to earth and angels ascending and descending. He said, this is the house of God and I didn't know it or the gateway to God and I didn't know it. Right there, he said, he, he made a covenant with God there. He said, God, if you bring me to Mesopotamia and back to Canaan again, you will be my God. You know, I'm going to be committed to you. So he's reminding God of this covenant. He said, you yourself said, I will most certainly do good with you and will make your seed like the sand of the sea that cannot be counted because of its abundance. Okay. All right. 
So verse 14, so he stayed overnight there from all, then from all that had come into his possession, and he took an offering for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats, 20 billy goats, 200 ewes, or uh, yeah, and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, and 40 cows, 10 bulls, uh, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. So altogether, that was 550 uh, animals, enough to, you know, to, to, to really start a good, healthy flock and herd for all these different kinds of animals. So it was instantaneous, immediate riches for Esau. He put them in the hands of his servants, each a herd by itself, and he said to his servant, Pass over before me and put a gap between each of the herds. Pass over. That's kind of interesting wording here. Pass over before me. Maybe this is sort of kind of prophetically alluding to when the children of Israel, when they leave Egypt, they were going to pass over, cross over uh, the Red Sea. Uh, it was kind of maybe a, 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 a remez, a hinting at that foreshadowing. Pass over before me and put a gap between each of the herds. Then he commanded the first one saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you, ask you saying, to whom do you belong and uh, where are you going and to whom do all these before you belong, then you are to say to your servant, to Jacob, it's an offering sent to my Lord, to Esau. And look, he's also behind us. So here, the, 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 first, the first barrage of gifts to Esau the servant says, oh, and Jacob's right behind us. So he's expecting that that's all he's going to get. And lo and behold, another band of gifts come. Another servant with a bunch of animals come. And each one says, oh, Jacob's behind me. Jacob's behind me. Jacob is behind me. So, you know, he keeps thinking, well, this is the end of the gifts. And more gifts keep coming. Therefore, buttering and softening Esau up even more. He's not expecting all of these gifts. So he's really seeing... Uh, Jacob being humiliated, Jacob being humbled, Jacob knowing his rightful place as secondborn, you know, so maybe this is building Esau's ego and, um, you know, saying, okay, you know, when my father blessed me, he said, one day I'm going to shake off this yoke. Maybe this is the day. Maybe this is it. And he also commanded the second one and the third and all those who were going behind the flock saying, say the exact same thing to Esau when you find him. Then you are to look, then you are to say, look, your servant Jacob is also behind me. For he thought, let me appease him with the offerings that go ahead of me and afterward see his face and perhaps he will lift up my face. There's, there's no better way to win an enemy over by buttering up with gifts unless the, the uh, revenge is just so deep you don't care about gifts. You don't care about any of that. So the offering passed over uh, ahead of him while he spent the night in the camp. Now, Jacob waited at the Jabbok River. The Jordan River was visible from Jacob's camp, and Jacob offered Esau 550 animals as gifts. So he's sending all these things ahead of him. Verse 23, Then he got up that night and took his two wives his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. 
So just as Jacob entered Mesopotamia with only a staff, he's in essence leaving Mesopotamia with only his staff because he sends all of his wealth, all of his riches, all of his family, which he has the potential of losing in one foul swoop ahead of him. And there's nothing like reality striking you when you don't have all these distractions around you. Now that his wives and his children are gone and all his possessions are gone, he's alone and he has time to think. He has time to get more scared. He has a time to maybe formulate more plans or be more conniving or more cunning. And he's by himself. And so when we're alone and we're by ourselves, we have no distractions around us. That is the perfect time and opportunity for God to get a hold of us and speak to us. There's people today who says, well, God never speaks to me. Well, maybe because you're not listening. Well, I'm listening all the time. I pray all the time and ask God to speak to me, and he doesn't speak to me. Well, maybe you're not giving God the opportunity for him to speak in such a way that, that you can listen to him. And you talk, you talk to people and you, tell, you, you, you ask them to tell them about their day and their routine. They get up in the morning and they watch the news, they eat breakfast, they get in the car, they turn on the radio and they listen to the radio on the way to work. When they get to work, there's music playing in the background. They go out to lunch. And then at the restaurant, there's TVs in every corner of the restaurant playing the sports channel or playing the news. And then they, you know, they get off work and maybe go to the gym and they have earbuds in and they're listening to music as they're working out. Then they go home and take a shower and eat supper and then they listen to the evening news. They're always being bombarded with something. They have no time, no peace and quiet, no time to think, no time to be quiet or get alone with God. Oh, well, I do my devotions. Oh, really? Well, yeah, I do that little daily bread. It takes me about five minutes, and I say that little prayer, and that's good enough. Really? That's like a spiritual tic-tac. That's a spiritual breath mint. It tastes good. It freshens you up in the moment, but it doesn't have the sustenance to carry you throughout your day. That's why it's important to read the Bible for yourself, to have personal devotions for yourself. Not down in the daily bread or devotionals, they're great, I use them too. But I also study the Word of God for myself and just read the scriptures as the scriptures. I turn everything off and I just say, Lord, open my heart, open my mind. Lord, uh, speak to me. Let your Holy Spirit move and speak to me. I want to know what your Word is trying to say to me. I want to know how to apply it to my life. But people, uh, and, and even when sometimes people go to bed, that's about the only time that there's peace and quiet. But oh no, they'll have the TV in the background to help them fall asleep. They'll have the radio in the background to help them fall asleep. There's no time that God can speak. Elijah, when he was running from Jezebel after all the prophets of Baal were slaughtered and, and, and Jezebel had this bounty on his head, he went back to Sinai. He went back to the cleft of the rock where the Ten Commandments were taken. And he's like, God, I want to die. I'm the only one left. And he's desperately trying to hear God. And then there's a whirlwind. There's an earthquake. There's a fire. There's all these distractions. And Elijah's not hearing God. And all of a sudden, all that quietens down. And it says that the Lord's voice was heard in that still, small voice. Don't you hate it when you're trying to talk to somebody and they've got the TV going on in the background. You're trying to have a visit with them and maybe the radio's on or you've got other people talking to them and there's all these distractions. You're like, you're not really listening to me. You hear the words coming out of my mouth, but you're not listening to me because I'm, I don't have your undivided attention. And that hurts your feelings. You get offended and you get mad. How do you think God th feels when he's trying to speak to you throughout the day and you're so busy, you don't, you're not giving him your full attention? So you're saying, God doesn't speak to me. Yes, he does. You're just not listening. 
You're not making space and time in your life to where you can listen. And life gets pretty crazy. And I always try at least once a year to get by myself for a week just so I can hear God. I mean, I do my best to listen to God throughout my, the, the year and throughout the day and throughout the weeks and months and stuff. But, you know, life gets crazy and busy and you get wrapped up in, in different things that are going on. And sometimes you just got to let go of all the distractions, all of the technology, the Internet, social media, TV, everything, and just get out into nature and just get out into the quiet. I've been watching this TV series called Alone, and there's these contestants that are spending 100 days in the Canadian Arctic for $1 million. It's, gonna, it's the last man standing kind of deal, process of elimination. And usually a month after, in, after they've you know, gone into the wilderness and they've built their shelter, they've, they've secured their food supply, and they're kind of getting into a routine, they start talking about how their past comes back to them. And they start thinking about things of the past and how they feel God or whatever they believe in speaking to them and how they're having spiritual experiences out there in the wilderness. Why? Because they have nothing else to do. They have no other distractions. And so we find Jacob here in a place where he no longer has any distractions. He doesn't have to worry about you know, the, getting cheated out of his, out of his uh, salary from Laban. He doesn't have to worry about feeding the, the, the cattle or milking them or anything like that. He doesn't have to worry about trying to please his wives and whose tent he's going to stay in that night. He doesn't have to worry about any. He's by himself. He sent all that ahead of him. So now Jacob has his encounter with God. Verse 25. So Jacob remained all by himself. Then a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. This Hebrew word for man is ish, which means man. So right off the bat, we get this impression, oh, there's just some stranger that wandered into his camp and wants to pick a fight with Jacob. And Jacob sees him and, and says, oh, it's just some strange dude. I don't know who this guy is. It's a man. And, and notice how the narrative changes from man to angel. So Jacob remained by himself. Then a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. When he saw that he had not overcome him, he struck the socket of his hip. So he dislocated the socket of Jacob's hip when he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for dawn has broken. But he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. After this night-long wrestling match, he realizes, wait a second, this is more than a human being. This is more than a man. And this is 90-year-old Jacob wrestling an angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is like, the only way we're going to stop this fight, because he's not going to quit, is if I injure him. So he dislocates his hip. It's, it's dawn. It's, it, it, it's about time to go. And... He said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. Right then, I think Jacob realizes this is more than a human being. This is more than just any ordinary man. This person had the power to stop me and to stop this fight. This person obviously has the power to somehow bless me in some way. Then he said to him, what is your name? Jacob, he said. Then he said, your name will no longer be Jacob, will no longer be surplanter, will no longer be heel catcher, will no longer be deceiver. But Israel, Israel means one who wrestles with God, Yisrael. The word El at the end of Israel is the, is the generic name for God. Yisrael, the prince who wrestles with God. 
That's what Israel means. For you have struggled with God and with men, and you have overcome. And you know, I think people want to be distracted. They want to have the, the iPods and the earbuds and the internet and the TV and the radio and the music and all this stuff because they're afraid of their own thoughts. People are afraid of what thoughts are going to come to their mind, what regrets may come to their mind, what things that may come to their mind that force them to look at their lives, evaluate their lives, and make changes. And that's why people don't like silence. They're afraid of what is going to come up in their spirit, what's going to come up in their heart and mind, what they're going to have to deal with. Because we as human beings spend our lifetime running from things. Whether it's regrets, whether it's fears, whether it's the past, whether it's another person, whether it's this or whether it's that. We're constantly on the run because we don't want to face the music and face reality. We don't want to admit that we've got a problem. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to admit that there's something that we've got to change. We want to make excuses for ourselves. And that was from the beginning. Ah, it's not my fault I ate the fruit. You know, this serpent made me do it. Uh-uh, no, God, it's not my fault I ate the fruit. This woman that you put here made me do it. You know, and so now we have that saying, the devil made me do it, right? Nobody makes you do anything. You have free will. And that's the problem today. Nobody takes personal responsibility for their actions. They want to blame it on somebody else. Oh, well, I'm this way because I grew up in a dysfunctional family. I'm this way because I was sexually abused as a child. I'm this way because somebody introduced me to drugs when I was young. I'm this way because, you know, we all have choices. Yeah, some of us have been dealt a bad hand. True. You know, bad things happen to us. We've been hurt. We've been abused. Who hasn't grown up in a dysfunctional family? There's no such, leave it, there's no such family as leave it to beaver. You know, there's no such family as a perfect family. All of them have flaws. I mean, you, you just read through the patriarchal families in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David's family. Who's more dysfunctional than them? So it's no excuse because we all have choices to make. I'm either going to let this situation break me and make me worse, or I'm going to make this, or I'm going to take this situation and not let it define who I am. I'm going to rise above the situation and choose a higher road and choose a better path. I'm not going to, you know, uh, make any excuses for myself. And so we all wrestle with God at some point or another in our life. We all wrestle with God, and all of our wrestling matches are over different things. But eventually. God's going to corner us at some point in our life. God's going to get us in a place where we have no other option but to face the music, and we're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to submit to God, make things right, work things out, or am I going to, am I going to foolishly keep running? You know, you can run as, run as hard and as fast as you want, but it's not going to make any difference in the end because God knows how to get your attention. And he tries little subtle ways to get your attention. And then sometimes those little subtle ways don't work. You know, and people say, well, why, why did I get in this car accident and I'm disabled? Why did I have that stroke or that heart attack? Why did this happen to me? Well, maybe because God's been trying to get your attention all your life. And I've heard story after story of people, some tragedy happening to them. And at first they're angry and they're mad at God. And the more that they go through this, then they realize that God was trying to get their attention all along. I've got a friend. He's in prison right now for, 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 some, for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah, prisons are full of those, right? But, but my friend is, and he's like, you know what? He's like, at first I was really sad and mad and all this. He's like, but you know what? I think God allowed me to go to prison because he, that was the only way to save my life. My friend was becoming rich. 
My friend was becoming famous. He was becoming a famous athlete. And he was rising up in the ranks and he was going to fulfill his dream of becoming a professional wrestler. And all of a sudden, he lands in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And he said, you know what? I was running from God because I was running after fame. I was running after fortune. And I know what God wanted me to do all along, and I didn't do it. And now that I'm in prison, I have no other option but to follow God. He got my attention. And now I'm living for him. So I don't regret this happening to me. Do I want to be behind these four walls? No, of course not. But I know that that was the only option God had in order to save my life. And I've known a lot of people who's gone through tragedies and, 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 and uh, injuries and hurts. And then they come to the end of it and they're like, you know what? I, I see now that this was necessary because I was so stubborn and I wouldn't listen and I just kept running. And that was kind of the same way with Jacob. But he finally made his peace with God. Kind of reminds me of the Forrest Gump movie. You know, Lieutenant Dan, he was angry because he thought it was his destiny to die on the battlefield. But he lost his legs. He was mad at God for losing his legs. And finally, he, you know, he becomes... Uh, the first mate of Forrest Gump on their shrimping boat and then they get stuck in the middle of this hurricane and Lieutenant Dan puts himself up on the hoist or on the mast and he's just having his battle out with God screaming match with God God's got big shoulders go ahead scream at him go ahead get mad at him he can take it and then at the end of the movie you see Lieutenant Dan has new legs you know he's got these prosthetics not only that but he's married he's happy he's cleaned himself up because he's made his peace with God. He, God got his attention, and he finally had his wrestling match with God and made his peace. So this is where Jacob makes his peace with God, and God blesses him and changes his name. So it says, uh, Then your name will no longer be Jacob, but rather Israel, for you struggle with God and men, and you have overcome. Now, if you read the scriptures from here on out, the name flips, flops back and forth. Sometimes he's called Jacob. Sometimes he's called Israel. I thought his name was changed to Israel. Why are they calling him Jacob here and calling him Israel here? The rabbis and sages of blessed memory, peace be upon them, said that whenever you see the name Jacob, Jacob was operating in his old nature. Jacob was operating uh, in fear and in, in faithlessness and in, in his old ways. And when his name, you see his name Israel, he's operating in faith. He's operating in his new identity. Which I think that's an interesting way of looking at that. And that does kind of explain a lot. So uh, verse 30, it says, Then Jacob asked and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, What's this of you asking my name? It was believed in ancient culture that if you knew the name of somebody, that you had power and authority and control over them. And so a name represented power. So it's like, you know, people who don't, they don't call their king by their name. They call them king so-and-so. They call them with this term of reverence and respect. It's not a first name basis because, you know, there's no familiarity there. And it's kind of the same way in the ancient world. If you knew somebody's name, uh, you were, you, it was believed you had the power to control them. So if you knew the name of some demon, you can control that demon. If you knew the name of some angel... You could control and manipulate that angel because you knew his name, because there was power in the name. That's what the belief was. So that's kind of maybe why some people believe that Jacob asked his name. But he said, what's this? You are asking me my name. Then he blessed them there. Now it's like with God's name. God goes by many titles, but he only has one name. And even when he revealed himself to Moses, he didn't give Moses his name. He said, I am that I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. 
It was, you know, he didn't reveal his name as Yahweh at that point in time. So Jacob named the place Peniel, or Peniel, which Peniel, mean, uh, Pene, or uh, uh, Pe, that means face. El means God. So Peniel means face of God. For I have seen God's God face to face, and my life has been spared. All the way back from the beginning, it was believed that if you seen God face to face, you were going to die. You were not going to live or survive. So Jacob realized that the first he thought it was a man. Then through the wrestling match, he realized this was a divine being. Not only did he, he recognize that this was an angel, but this was actually God himself. And the reason that Jacob survived is because God clothed himself or tempered his glory in human form. It's kind of like a radiation suit. A radiation suit's gonna protect you from radiation, but if you're not wearing a radiation suit, you're gonna die. So if God's glory is not covered or masked in some way, you will die you can, because you're sinful flesh and you can't be in the presence of an almighty God. That's why during Yom Kippur, they have that smoke screen of incense that they, that they uh, uh, billow into the, uh, into the Holy of Holies. So that there's that smoke screen between the priest and the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God resides, so they're able to put the blood on the Ark. Because if there was no smoke screen there, boom, those priests would be dead. So in the same way, when God wants to interact with human beings, he puts on a, a, on a, a skin sleeve, so to speak. So he manifests himself in a physical form, in a fleshly form. And the scriptures, whenever you see angel of capital L-O-R-D, or angel of Adonai, or angel of the Lord, or angel of Yahweh, that is code word to say this is the Messiah in pre-incarnate form. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same was in the beginning with God. So whenever God shows up in the flesh, he shows up in the flesh uh, as a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Yeshua in pre-incarnate form before he was birthed through the Virgin Mary. So this is called a Christophany in theological circles. And so Jacob realized that. And we run into this all throughout the scripture. We, we, we run into it with Samson's parents. Because remember the sacrifice and all of a sudden Samson's dad says, oh crap, we just seen God, now we're going to die. And, and his wife says, no, 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 if we're going to die, we'd be dead already. You know? And then Hagar encounters the angel of the Lord. Moses encounters the angel of the Lord that was inside the burning bush. So this, anytime you see angel of the Lord, know that that is Yeshua before the New Testament. It's the word that became flesh and manifest in the flesh. So he's saying, you have the authority to bless me, bless me. So he blesses them there. He calls the place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face and my life has been spared. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed by Peniel, limping because of his hip. That is why the children of Israel do not eat the tendon in the hip socket to this very day, because he struck the socket of Jacob's thigh on the tendon of his hip. When we have our encounter with God, we leave that encounter not the same person we were before. When we have an encounter with God, we are changed. Our walk will be different when we encounter the Almighty God. We walked the way we wanted to, and we walked according to the flesh and uh, to our own dictates. Boom, we have this encounter with God, we're limping. We're walking differently because we've encountered God and we never walk the same again. And that's the way it should be for the Christian life. 
When we get saved, our walk shouldn't be the way it was as it was before. No matter what you were into, people should know and see that you were complete, a completely different person. After all, you've been born again. You aren't the same person. That old person is dead, had died in Christ, been crucified with Christ, been laid in the grave. And through baptism symbolizes that. When, when we're baptized, we go under the water symbolizing our burial. We come up, symbolize being raised from the dead, symbolize being born, because when we're born, we have to go through the birth canal and we break water, right? And, that's, and that, that analogy is over and over in Scripture. When the children of Israel pass through the Red Sea in the New Testament, they liken it unto the birth of a nation because they pass through the water. Jesus said you have to be born of water and of spirit. So it represents being born again. This is almost like Jacob's conversion experience. He was born again. He became Israel. But with that battle of the flesh, sometimes our old nature rises up, and sometimes he's called Jacob, and sometimes he's called Israel. All right. Let's see. I'm just going to go through my notes, just make sure I got everything. All right. And you know, this, this tradition is carried on in foreign countries. When missionaries go to foreign countries, a lot of times when people get saved, like in Africa, they will adopt a Christian name because they want that to symbolize they've been born again. They have a new identity. They're not the same person that they were. So that still carries on today in a lot of places. New name means a new nature and a new prophetic destiny over your life. Names mean something. That's why it's important how you, what you name your child. You know, now people are naming them after name brands. Ooh, Nautica sounds really nice. I'm going to name my daughter Nautica. That's a clothing store. Where are you going to name your daughter after a clothing store? You know, our names mean something, and our names give us a prophetic destiny. My name is Christopher, one who is Christ-like. Scott, the one who has the mark, the one who has the mark of Christ, the one who is Christ-like. I'm supposed to be like Christ. You know, if you have the name, uh, uh, you know, Gad, uh, you're supposed to be a soldier for the Lord, a troop for the Lord. You're supposed to get, you know, so our names mean something and it reveals part of our personality, part of our prophetic destiny. That's why it was so important of what you named your child, what you named them after, because it gave them a purpose. It gave them a meaning. It gave them direction and a prophetic destiny in their life. Just like Jesus, Yeshua, what does his name mean? His name means salvation. That was his purpose. That was his prophetic mission. And he accomplished that. He was the salvation of mankind. So Jacob is no longer the heel catcher. He's no longer the deceiver. He's no longer the surplanter. He's the one who wrestles. He's the prince who wrestles with God and won. That's his new name and prophetic destiny, which says that Israel, in the end, is going to win. Israel, in the end, is going to be saved. Interesting. All right, let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day and for another opportunity to study and research and, and, and uh, search out your word. We thank you for the things you've shown us and taught us through uh, this session today. May we feast upon it and meditate on it and go on it throughout this week and uh, get more out of it. Maybe read it over again. Maybe meditate on it more. So help us, Father, and bless us as we go into the uh, uh, service this afternoon. We ask and pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.